Thank you, Zach. And yes, the music today goes beautifully with what we're talking about in the scriptures. And uh, we really do want to take today and, and not move past Thanksgiving too quickly. Uh, as much as our culture is, is kind of bent on doing that, uh, it used to be that it was sort of like, you know, Thanksgiving, and then there'd be a space, and there's Christmas, and then it's like Christmas card didn't encroach, and then pretty much Thanksgiving just became sort of a precursor to Black Friday. That's really what everything was all about. And so we want to stop and very deliberately say, no, we want to pause to give thanks to God. And so uh, we're continuing to do that from, from last week to, to this week, kind of bookends on that week of, of Thanksgiving. And as we do so, we're going to be, we're going to be taking some time to, to be in a, a psalm. And it's appropriate that Zach even mentioned how our singing goes with, you know, what we're talking about today. Because really the psalms are written, uh, the book of psalms, the entire book of psalms is written for the purpose of helping God's people offer praises to him. God loves hearing us sing to him. God loves receiving our praises. And so when we're gathered in, in this time like this, we are, we're, we're giving him offerings of praise from our hearts. And there's a lot of different kinds of psalms. When you look at the book of psalms, there's, there's some psalms that are laments. They're actually uh, coming before God and asking for help because of a situation of trouble that's around a, a person or a group of people. And so they're facing this trouble in, in, the, in the sense of seeking God in the midst of it. There's other psalms that are hymns of praise. Other psalms that are hymns of thanksgiving. There are other psalms that are written in order to celebrate God's law and the way in which God has given his law to his people to show what it means to live a full life before him. There's wisdom psalms that are, that are written so that people can not only utter praises to God, but they can hear them and face different situations with uh, God's wisdom and skill. Uh, there's, there's songs of confidence that express faith. Uh, there's royal psalms that, that are usually centered some way upon the Davidic, the Davidic monarchy, right? David's reign and the way that King David would even be a part of, of writing some of those psalms as well. But they would also look forward to and anticipate the Messiah to come, Jesus, uh, the, the, the king. And so uh, those psalms were very, very much exalting Messiah and his reign overall. There's a historical psalms that will take different portions of, of redemption history and unfold those so that people could remember what God had done from the Exodus and, and after the Exodus as they, they went into the land of Canaan. And then from there, as they would struggle with believing, then there was different ways that God would discipline his people through the Babylonian captivity and other things. And there's prophetic hymns as well, hymns that, that, that look ahead in the psalms to what's to come, that predict the future. And so all these were sung by God's covenant people as they gathered to worship him over the centuries. And it's, it's a part of our heritage also as new covenant people. We're not under the old covenant. Praise God, we are under the new covenant in Jesus. Jesus has come. He has lived the life we could never live. He's died the death we deserve. He is now risen. And today we even gather on this very day, the first day of the week, because of his resurrection in commemoration of that. And so the joy of the resurrected Christ saturates all that we do together as we gather in this way at this time. Uh, but, I, but I'm struck by how the, the Psalter, the, the book of Psalms, has all these different modes of expression. And they're all appropriate, from lament to praise, to anticipating the future, to dealing with trials and difficulties and struggles. And, and, and the psalm that we're going to be in today is, is Psalm 130. And it is actually a lament psalm. Uh, 
It's a, it's a, a lament psalm that, that even is a confession of sin to God. And what's interesting is it's also a psalm of ascents. So what that means is uh, during the Passover season, God's people would enter Jerusalem and they would utter this and offer up this lament psalm to God as they approach the temple. And so uh, if you can turn to page 451 in the Old Testament uh, for the, in the Bibles in the, in the chair rack in front of you. And uh, because this is the word of God, we want to honor it. And so would you please stand so we can receive it in a way that's mindful of the fact that God is speaking. Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him there is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask that in this time, in this season, that you would cause us again to, to resound with thanksgiving for your provision of rescue, of rescue from sin and from death. And that, that comes through Jesus alone. We thank you that we can now, as your people, even rejoice in the elements of this psalm penned centuries before fulfilled by your son. And so we pray, Lord, that now you would cause us as your people to, to drink deeply of you, to, to know you in a deeper way, and to approach you in light of what we learn from this declaration of, of praise unto you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So a, a question for you. Are you awake? You're looking at me like, dude, I just came through Thanksgiving. Are you crazy? Why are you asking me that question? Are you awake? Imagine you're on an airplane. You know, you're flying to the East Coast. You're tired. You're so tired that even when the offering of a drink comes by, you pass. You're asleep by the time the food cart comes by. And you're laying there, and all of a sudden, you find yourself dreaming of a roller coaster ride. You're in the front car falling. When all of a sudden, you awaken to the fact that the sensation of falling is not really part of a dream. No, in fact, the plane is doing this in a big way. When you wake up, you are in distress. For that moment, it's very clear. You are really not in a place that human beings were designed to be terribly comfortable in. I mean, you are flying hundreds of miles an hour at 40,000 feet in the air inside of a little metal tube. And so you're awakened in that moment and you are distressed. Pilot corrects course, gets out of the turbulence. Everyone's fine. But life is like that sometimes, isn't it? You know, you're, you're going along blissfully ignorant of suffering and sin. And then, bam, work is gone. Job is taken away. You've got health troubles. There's the loss of a loved one even sometimes. 
Sometimes it's ongoing pressure that you're facing. Maybe it's financial pressure. Maybe it's your struggle with indwelling sin in your life. But here's the thing. This psalm tells us it's really, really good to be awake. And when we are awake to what God's doing in and through those times, there's a way in which we then become people who walk with God, even praise God through those seasons. And so I'm going to be, we're going to be asking a question together. How do awake believers respond to distress? How do awake believers respond to distress? And the first thing we would find in the psalm is this. Awake believers cry to God. That's the first thing we do. And we find that in verses 1 and 2. Notice it's out of the depths I have cried to you. What, what are the depths? That is a depiction of really the ocean. So if you can imagine this raging storm and you're out in the middle of the sea and the waves are about to take you under. Uh, someone was telling me the other day that there were there was some scientific studies done and they're like, yeah, waves, waves cannot physically get higher than, you know, 60 feet. It just can't happen. Some scientists believed this years ago. And they were talking about physics and everything else until, of course, there was a a vessel in the middle of the ocean and they encountered like a 70-foot swell. <laughs> and then it was sort of like, hey, so what do you say about that? And they're like, well, there might have been some other variables involved. The bottom line is the ocean is a scary place. Especially if you're alone in it and especially if it's raging. And so the Hebrew people found this particularly terrifying. And the psalm is to saying here, he's, he's saying, I am right now engulfed in a sea of troubles. Out of the depths, he's saying, I've cried to you. It's also interesting to note that the term to, to cry there is not something that just happened in the past. It's something that is saying, I, I've done this in the past, but I'm also doing this right now. I'm crying. And, and so the picture is one of some, some kind of overwhelming personal devastation. And it's not specific here, and there's a reason for that. You know why? Because all of us go through different times of devastation, don't we? And what's, what's being said here is being said so that no matter who we are, where we're from, what we're facing, God's saying this truth is here for you. Especially if you're here today in Jesus, if you've trusted Christ by faith, Brother or sister, you need to know that this is written that you would be encouraged and helped and strengthened right now. This isn't just a kind of formal thing we do. Yeah, someone's got to preach about something in the Bible. No, we're gathering right now for food for our souls. We need this. God himself is speaking through his word to the extent that his word's being preached. And so this is for us. Someone wrote a really beautiful paraphrase of this verse. I'd like you to listen to it. So here's what it said. From the depths I cry to you, O Lord. I cry in the night from the prison cell and from the concentration camp, from the torture chamber. In the hour of darkness, hear my voice, my SOS. So you'll notice also this cry doesn't just come out to anyone. It's to you, O Lord. The term for Lord there is Yahweh. It's God's personal name that he gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses was saying, who should I say is sending me to the people of Israel? And God says, I'm going to give you my name, the I am. 
And a part of what he's saying to Moses in that is, I am the self-existent one. I am the one from eternity past, present, and on into eternity future. I am the, the one, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's, he's conveying that. But he's also saying to Moses, because you remember Moses in that moment is afraid. He doesn't want to go. And he's saying to Moses, I am with you. So this is the one that we cry out to. And then the next phrase, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. So he's saying, Lord, please hear me. Please hear me in the midst of this storm, in the midst of the raging sea. I'm crying out to you. Please listen. Now we need to understand something for us who are, again, in Christ. Do you realize something? That Jesus, we're told in the New Testament, is the one who intercedes for us on our behalf. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. The, the Aaronic priesthood that they experienced in the Old Testament was a picture of what Jesus would do. So believer, do you understand that as you cry out to God because of Jesus, because of who he is, because of what he's accomplished, God hears you? You're not coming to God based on your merit. You're not saying, Lord, hear me because I'm a great person. No, you're saying, I'm coming to you. You'll notice how we pray in this way. I'm coming to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. When we pray like that, again, that's not, a, that's not just a period at the end of our prayer. That's not the way to say to the group, oh, he's done praying. No, it's saying, I'm coming to you, God, in Christ. He's my advocate. He's my high priest. So you can be assured, brothers and sisters, that he hears you. And so when we're awake in the midst of distress, the first thing we need to do is cry to God. By the way, what do we do when we're not awake? I'll tell you what I do. I don't cry to God. I grumble to my wife. That's what I do. Or anybody else who will listen. I still love the Greek word for grumbling. Because it actually sounds like what it is. It's like gagongzola. It has multiple consonants in it. So it kind of, you, get, you get the grumbling idea in the term itself. Rather than crying to God, we, 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 we just gripe. Instead of seeing, no, wait, God, you've got a purpose for this. Whatever the form of distress would be, you have a purpose for this in my life. Lord, I'm crying to you. So how do awake believers respond to distress? First, they cry to God. But, but not only that, secondly, they also marvel at God's forgiveness. Look at verses 3 and 4. Lord, if you should mark iniquities, literally perversity, that's what that word means. If you should mark the perversity of my life, he's saying, or anyone's perversity of life, who could stand? And of course the answer is nobody. Nobody. And, and when we get to this portion of the psalm, we start to realize something. Now the distress, the element of distress, the nature of the distress, it's becoming a little more clear. It's not just general distress at all. No, instead, it's, it's distress that somehow is connected to, related to, or stemming from the psalmist's own sin. 
And that's significant, so significant that I think we need to reframe kind of our focused question. And rather than it just being how do awake believers respond to distress, I think it's how do awake believers respond to distress, especially distress from their own sin. And again, what's the, they, they cry to God firstly, but they also marvel at God's forgiveness. And that's very significant. Because if we don't cry to God in the depths of our own sinfulness, you know what we do instead? We just sort of ignore sin. We avoid it. Oh, I, I wasn't that bad. Eh, a little slip up. We kind of downplay it in our lives. We don't actually address it or deal with it. Or you know what we do also? We'll rely on our own strength through some kind of form of penance. And by the word penance, what I mean is uh, Oxford Dictionary defines penance like this. Penance is voluntary self-punishment inflicted as an outward expression of repentance for having done something wrong. That's what penance is. It's self-punishment inflicted on ourselves. Lots of religious groups do that. You know, the Roman Catholic Church is famous for that. I grew up in that. I know all about penance. And that was one of the things that struck me the most about the gospel when I actually heard it. I was like, wait a minute. What? Jesus paid for all of my sin already? It's paid for? That's not how I grew up. It was Jesus saves you and plus Jesus plus keeping the sacraments equals salvation. That's what it was. I remember doing penance. I would, I would go to the priest. I would, you know, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. This is my whatever number of confession. I would say the things that I knew he wouldn't have to talk to my parents about. Only that. Nothing more. And then after that, I kind of got my penance. So I had to say this many Hail Marys, this many Our Fathers. And that was penance. I was doing that in order to make up for my sin. How on earth do we square that with what Jesus says when he says, It is finished. So if we don't turn to Jesus, we engage in some form of penance. And I would love to say, then since becoming a believer and walking with Jesus, I don't ever fall into penance ever at all, those kinds of actions. Really? We do it too, my fellow Baptists. We do it. Sometimes it's, it comes down to this, you know, if I feel really bad about this, I'm going to feel, I'm just going to guilt myself, man. I'm just going to, you know, kind of the, the idea of you take the whip and you hit yourself, self-flagellation is what it's called. We just kind of go through that emotionally. We try to make up for it some other way. That's not the gospel. We are declared righteous, justified, we're told in the book of Romans, based on what? The good works of Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. So when we look at this and, and, and when we marvel at God's forgiveness, it comes because we see how awful sin really is. We come to see also in light of God's holiness how his wrath is poured out 
against all who rebel against him. And that's why the psalmist asked that question. Who could stand? In light of all of our perversity, who of us could stand? Nobody. And, and this is being said by the psalmist in light of a deep, clear understanding of God's holy, holy, holy nature and his righteous wrath against all who rebel against him in sin, which is all of us. You know, there's, there's an, in, in, in some way, there's a, uh, when we think of God's wrath, especially today when we consider God's wrath, uh, I think A.W. Pink put it well when, when he said, it's sad to see, or it's, it's sad to find so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology, or who at least wish there were no such thing. It's almost like we, kinda, we need to downplay it. Um, it's almost considered a blemish on, on God's character somehow that there is such a thing as wrath. But here's the thing. If God is in fact holy, how can he be indifferent against sin? And by the way, when we look at the evil in the world, is, is the great and good solution to it all to just be indifferent toward evil? You think of the innocent that we have even seen in, in, you know, in, in the news, you know, enduring various forms of evil committed against them, whether it be by terrorist attack or otherwise. We think of in our own country, the way in which children at times are trafficked. You think God's going to look at that kind of evil? And, and so nobility from God would be to look at that sort of child trafficking and, and, and see it as some sort of, well, it's not that big of a deal. That's good. No, that's outrageous. We ought to be angry. God hates sin. He is not indifferent towards it. The problem for us is we categorize sins. Well, that's really bad. My sin isn't that bad. Well, that's not what the Bible would say. The Bible says if we were able to keep the whole law yet stumble in one point, we become guilty of all. Hypothetically, if we could somehow live a life where we don't violate God's law at all, we live to, and then right at the end, right before we die, we thought a bad thought about someone. We thought of someone as being a fool. Maybe we even said it, you fool. What does Jesus say? You just committed murder in your heart. And you're worthy of eternal punishment in hell. And so we look at that, and our modern sensibilities are offended by that sometimes. We go, well, well come on, man, tone it down. Don't talk like that. It'll be a turnoff. Well, here's the thing. We're not trying to not turn people off. We're trying to be honest. This is what the scriptures teach. You know, sometimes we have that, that saying that'll be, you know, thrown around quite a bit. You know, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. I think we need to be careful with that phrase too. Um, you know, Psalm 5. Here's what Psalm 5 says in verses 4 and 5. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. That's Psalm 5, verse 5. Now, we need to be wise with this statement. Some will say, well, you can't say that. Well, the Bible says that. 
Others go way over here and start kind of, in a weird way, rejoicing in that. Like, isn't that wonderful? Well, that's not the biblical position either. Because here's the thing. God does hate all who do iniquity. Not just the sin, but those who carry it out. And yet at the same time, you know what else the Bible tells us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is why this matters. We don't see the beautiful good news of God's gracious love for sinners unless we understand his righteous wrath against sinners. We've got to understand the bad news first before the good news means anything. And rather than kind of pull toward those two extremes that make certain people at certain times feel more comfortable, we need to stick with the uncomfortable biblical tension. God hates all who do iniquity, and yet God loves sinners. The whole world, which means the world. God sent his son to die in our place. God saves millions upon millions of people who in and of themselves merit no love, no grace. If anything, they merit nothing but, but, but his wrath. And yet, what does he do in his grace and kindness? He saves them. He rescues them. He, he, he makes them then the apple of his eye, as some have said. And, there, and there's this ongoing grace given, this salvation that stunningly takes us from death and brings us to life. But God doesn't come to us initially because, oh, you're a really attractive person. I think I'm going to save you. That's not it. He says, I come to you, and because I love you, I'm going to rescue you. And that's the picture we find here. Lord, if, if you should mark iniquities, again, or perversity, oh, Lord, who could stand? But, notice the contrast in verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Once we see God's wrath and his just anger against sinners, and then we see his grace given to all who will turn to him, his grace lavished upon people who don't deserve it, now the stunning declaration from the Apostle Paul makes sense. That from 2 Corinthians 5, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We don't really see that diamond unless we see it against the black backdrop of sin and what it deserves. And now we're stunned by grace. Or at least we should be. There is forgiveness with you, Lord, that you may be feared. Charles Spurgeon put it so well when he said this, but there is forgiveness with thee, blessed, free, full, sovereign pardon is in the hand of the great king. It is his prerogative to forgive and he delights to exercise it. Because of his nature, 
Because his nature is mercy and because he has provided a sacrifice for sin, therefore forgiveness is with him for all that come to him confessing their sins. The power of pardon is permanently resident with God. He has forgiveness ready to his hand at this instant. That's why when we sing about God's grace, we sing amazing grace. Because it is. And no act of penance can bring you into this place. Because frankly, you could never be penitent enough. No, grace is what God gives, what he lavishes. The definition of grace is giving what is not deserved. And when we see that, we see that God is to be feared. I kind of was thinking about that this week. You know, God is to be feared because of forgiveness. How does that work? You would think once we're forgiven, we'd be not afraid anymore. And we're told that in, in different places in Scripture. For example, 1 John says that perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. So there is a sense in which God's love takes fear away. But that's not what the psalmist is talking about here. This fear isn't, isn't, isn't the fear of being punished or maimed by God. No, this fear instead is, is the notion of awe. It's having your breath taken away. And so in thinking about that, how, how, how is this so awe-inspiring? Well, I think we need to consider what kind of enemy sin actually is. There's a guy named Thomas Guthrie. Uh, he, he was uh, born on July 12, 1803, and then he went home to be with the Lord on February 24, 1873. He was actually one of the most popular preachers of his day in Scotland. And uh, he was also someone who started a lot of different ministries of mercy in that country at that time. And, uh, and he wrote a poem about sin, entitled Sin, actually. And here's, here's what, it, what it says. Who is the undertaker that digs man a grave? Who is the painted temptress that steals his virtue? Who is the murderess that destroys his life? Who is the sorceress that first deceives and then damns his soul? Sin. Who with icy breath blights the fair blossom of youth? Who breaks the hearts of parents? Who brings old men with sorrow to the grave? Sin. Who by a more hideous metamorphosis than Ovid ever fancied changes gentle children into vipers, tender mothers into monsters, and their fathers into worse than Herods, the murderers of their own innocence? Sin. Who casts the pain of discord on household hearts? Who lights the torch of war and bears it blazing over trembling lands? Who by division in the church rends Christ's seamless robe? Sin. Who is the Delilah that sings the Nazarite asleep and delivers up the strength of God into the hands of the uncircumcised? Who, winning smiles on her face, honeyed flattery on her tongue, stands in the door to offer the sacred rites of hospitality, and when suspicion sleeps, treacherously pierces our temples with a nail? What fair siren is this, who, seated on a rock by a, the deadly pool, smiles to deceive, sings to allure, kisses to betray, and flings her arm around our neck to leap with us into hell? Sin. Who turns the soft, gentlest hearts to stone? Who hurls reason from her lofty throne and impels sinners 
like the Gerardine swine down the precipice into the lake of fire? Sin. That is a vivid description of sin. That is an accurate description of sin. But now when we see that God is mighty enough, powerful enough to overcome that foe, to defeat it completely, as Jesus came and paid the price and took your sin and shame and bore it on the cross and gives you his righteousness as a gift, that God himself would defeat sin by the sacrifice of his own son, as demonstrated by the resurrection of his own son. That should cause us to fear. No one could accomplish that. No one could defeat that foe but God alone. And then when we see how God lavishes his forgiveness on us, it causes us to be again in awe. And that's the thing, when we actually see that, when, when we see the danger and the destruction of sin, we see the power and pervasiveness of sin throughout life, history, the world, and then we see that God's defeated it. It causes us to see how incomparably great God is. And so we fear. And I think a principle for us is this. Abundant forgiveness from God brings abiding fear of God. Abundant forgiveness from God brings abiding fear of God. And so when we're really awake, when we really see this, it causes us to rejoice in this way. So how do awake believers respond to distress, especially the distress that comes from their own sin? Not only do they cry to God and marvel at God's forgiveness, but here's the thing. Thirdly, they also stay awake in God. That's what we find in verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. In his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. A few things to see here. One would be this. The word wait, we've said this many times before, but just let's hold on to this. If you've been with us for a while, you've heard this. Waiting is not the idea of just standing there waiting for something to happen. So if you were standing outside of a store on Friday going, come on, let's get this line moving. I'm waiting. That's not what he's talking about here. Waiting has the idea, the, the, the word here in Hebrew actually means to pull, to stretch, and to twist. That's what it means to wait. So the idea would be you're in the middle of something, a circumstance, a difficulty, and you're feeling like I am being stretched, but I'm not just being stretched, I'm actually being twisted and stretched at the same time. But in the middle of that, I am looking up. I am trusting God. That's waiting. And so he's saying, wait, wait for the Lord. You'll notice he says it multiple times. Again, that's a way to emphasize something in Hebrew poetry. It's repeated to say, you need to be twisted, stretched. You need to wait through this. 
And then what an interesting metaphor. More than the watchman for the morning. I've never been in the military, but I've heard that one of the hardest things to do if you are in the military is to be on watch. Some of our veterans are going, yep, it sure is. Okay, so I've heard that. I've heard it's hard to stay awake. A oh, oh, person on watch, they're, they're supposed to be guarding something. They're supposed to be focused on something. Yeah, but here's the problem. A lot of times it doesn't look like anything's happening. And so if you have the night watch, what's your job? You're, you're, you're watching from sundown to sunup. In the ancient world, that's how the night watch worked. And so you are watching what's happening. You're alert in the middle of what's going on, even though it seems like nothing's going on, but you're also anticipating that sunrise. You're anticipating the morning. You're anticipating what comes from the morning. Relief, light, joy. And, and I think uh, that that is something that is so important that we learn to stay awake in God especially in the midst of distress. Stay awake. Um, I don't know. The, the older I get, the, the more I struggle with staying awake. I'll just be honest, folks. We joke, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll go home, put on a football game, and it's like, yeah, dad just really likes napping to football games. That's really what he likes to do. Okay, it's true. Quickest way to fall asleep, put a movie on. Janet and I have become professional. So I, should I, I shouldn't speak for you, should I, Janet? I'm sorry. I have become professional. I just conking out. And of course, the dog loves it, right? He's right there with you, like, yeah, nap time, woohoo, right? Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, you would have liked that. It was really good, you know. But we, we struggle to stay awake. Staying awake is hard. And then you add to that, and I do think that's part of, partly uh, being described here in the psalm. You add to that when you're trying to stay awake during a time that's critical. It's important, but it doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like anything's happening. It appears to be just another ho-hum moment, day, time, shift to be on watch. And yet, God is doing something. So when we're watching, when we're looking for something to happen and we're being stretched and pulled in the midst of that, we, we start to understand certain things. We understand that we cannot control the circumstance. We can't control whether we get in or out of an illness. We, we can't control the economy or our nation or where things go politically. We can't control how people respond to us. We can't control that. We really can't control much of anything. And then also a part of this waiting more specifically in line of this idea of dealing with indwelling sin and responding to the distress caused by our own sin. Believer, you must wait on God in the midst of dealing with that sin. You've confessed it to him. That's what we're called to do. If, if we, we sin, we're told in 1 John, you know, confess your sin to him. Agree with him is what that means, verbally with God. Lord, I've sinned against you. Confess it. And what does God do? He is faithful and he's just, we're told in 1 John, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because of what Jesus did. So we, we are truly cleansed uh, objectively. From God's vantage point, he sees you 
If you have trusted Jesus, he, has, he sees you as forgiven and as cleansed. And, and it's just because Jesus actually did pay that price for that sin on the cross. He did that. But at the same time, there's also this the sense of forgiveness and assurance. And, and I think this passage would urge us as a principle, brothers and sisters, don't just rush on into just, okay, fine. I confess that I'm moving on. Sometimes it takes a time of wrestling, of waiting on God to sense from him experientially that pardon, that forgiveness for sins. By the way, thankfully, it doesn't mean objectively you're not forgiven because that's from what Jesus did. But in our wrestlings with sin and confession of sin, this principle here from this psalm would be let's wait on God. Let's be watchful knowing that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit will speak assurance and peace and grace and forgiveness to our hearts in his timing. Objectively forgiven, but subjectively as we experience it. Let's trust God in that. And, and also trust his timing in, in the sanctifying work of his spirit as we grow in, in, in the removal of sin. We, we find here, you know, in Jesus, what's happened is we've been saved from the penalty of sin. And in Jesus also, if you've come to Christ, you're actually saved right now from the power of sin. You've been rescued from that. We're told that new things, uh, old things have passed away, new things have come. You, you're a new creature. You're united to Christ. You've been baptized into Jesus. You live today with resurrection power from the age to come. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal body also. So right now you're rescued from sin's power. There's going to come a day when you're rescued from sin's presence. It won't even be there. If you're in Jesus, it's going to be gone. Can you imagine that? No, you can't. Neither can I. We've never known that. It's going to be amazing. We, we have people in our lives, our loved ones, they're with Jesus now. They know that bliss right now. We're looking forward to it. But a part of this watchful waiting is trusting God through this process. Thank you, Lord, for saving me from the penalty of sin. Thank you that I am no longer subjected to its power. Though I still sin. And there have been times in the past where, you know, we, you see Adam and Eve, they were our representatives before God. And you're going, well, they didn't represent me. I didn't vote for them. I'm an American. They weren't my representative. And it's like, guess what? They were. You don't get to choose. It's not a democratic thing at all. They represented you. And you can think, well, they didn't represent me very well. Because if I was there, I never would have. Really, you want to go there? Because here's the truth. They were not uh, under the power of indwelling sin at that time. And in Christ, guess what? You've been liberated now from the power of indwelling sin. Yet, they chose to sin. And brothers and sisters, you also choose to sin in that same place. What does that mean? They represented us pretty well. But saved from the penalty of sin, we praise God for that. It's done. Saved from the power of sin now, though we still wrestle with it. And we look forward to the day of being saved from the presence of sin at all. Through that whole process, what are we called to do? Wait on God.
Where does he have you in your battle with sin? You might feel very defeated right now. We all have besetting sins, multiple besetting sins. This Psalm is saying to you, your hope needs to rest on God's work. Turn to him, trust him, confess your sins, receive his forgiveness, wait on him. And don't lose heart because that day is coming. You'll notice what he says as he's waiting. Look at the second part of verse five. And in his word do I hope. Huh. That's important. Why? Because as I'm wrestling with sin, as I'm struggling, as I find myself battling, and I find myself in distress because of it, you'll notice the phrase doesn't say, and in my improved behavior I hope. No. It's in his word do I hope. Is that going to result in a changed life? Yes, the Bible tells us that. Yes, we're going to be growing in him, but sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Sometimes our walk, as Toby Mac said, becomes a crawl. Sometimes our crawl becomes us laying face down on the ground. But praise God, by his grace, even when we lay, are laying on face on the ground, we're still pointed in the right direction. So we wait on him. We trust him. And it's an urgent thing for us to be awake in waiting on God. And that we stay awake in God. We need one another for that. I need you to spur me on to stay awake. There's going to be, Christmas is coming up. There's going to be a bunch of little kids trying to stay up and wait for somehow these presents to show up under the tree or in stockings or wherever. Now they want to see. Thankfully, none of them make it. Have you noticed that? To the relief of many parents. But staying awake, urging one another on, hey, you can do it. Don't fall asleep. How do awake believers respond to distress in life, especially distress from their own sin? Awake believers cry to God. They marvel at God's forgiveness. They stay awake in God. And lastly, awake believers hope in God. And we find that at the very end. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness. With him there is abundant redemption. Notice it's not just redemption. Redemption has the idea of purchasing someone out of the slave market of sin. And it's not just a little bit or barely enough. No, it's abundant. It's overflowing. God has more than enough resources to pull you out of the slave market of sin. And he will pay any price. He loves you so much, he will pay any price, even the price of the life of his only begotten son. It concludes with, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This, this, from all his iniquities, is a look to the future. And this very much includes the promise of what comes when Jesus returns. When he reigns on this earth, over this earth, from this earth, the millennial kingdom, when Israel is brought to her Messiah, 
we find that redemption is complete. And so we hope in the Lord. So God is, is mighty to provide a way of redemption from sin in Jesus Christ. And so when we see that, we fear him with joy because we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We wait on him as we live life anew against the power of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And we look ahead in hope to his return as he removes the presence of sin. Well, brothers and sisters, let's learn how we can be those who stay awake even in the midst of the distress. That the Lord would be glorified. That we would be thankful in the midst of a thankless age. And that others would come to know the same hope that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to wait for you more than the watchmen for the morning. Thank you that you are the one who hears our cry in distress, that there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Thank you, Lord, that you're coming back soon. So we praise you in the name of our Messiah, the ruler of the kings of the earth, Jesus Christ. And in him we give you thanks. Amen.